You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. All right. Hello. You are listening to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld. This afternoon, I am talking with Grant Goldberg, who normally is our engineer, today our guest, and Aaron Gold, who normally is not our engineer and is also today our guest. Hooray! Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for talking. Thanks for having us. Uh, sorry. Please. I was going to say thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you guys are the uh, creators and producers of You Are Not Alone here at the Magnet Theater. Can you talk about that show? Sure. Uh, you Are Not Alone is an uplifting show about depression. Uh, we unite uh, a lot of uh, performers who have either depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder or uh, or anyone who kind of self-associates with anything of that nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the crazies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the crazies and the misfits come to us. Uh, and we just kind of show, you know, that that it's not this stigma that's carried with, you know, people who have depression or whatever. And uh, this kind of like this kind of negative uh, uh, feeling that the general populace has about these type of things and, and of kind of uh, 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 a kind of distance that's associated with people who has that is just completely not necessary. Mm-hmm. It's you a know. show about educating. I mean, that, that's the way I see it is it's kind of a way for people to, um, I guess I should explain my philosophy to make this point Please. clearer, which is that, um, the best way to deal with depression in yourself and in other people is to treat everything like it's okay. Yeah. And that sounds really, um, that, that doesn't mean like just get over it or suck it up or, you know, like run a lap. Like that's, it's the opposite of that. It's like, I may feel awful, but I have to get through my life. And at the same time for someone else to see me, um, or whoever, obviously, uh, and say like, they look like they're miserable or they seem like something's wrong or, um, the instinct is to avoid or to try and fix. Mm-hmm. And that's not the way to deal with things. The way to deal with things is to accept. Yeah. Just, just go about your day, treat them like normal. You know, like if you were going to talk to them about comic books, talk to them about comic books, because the biggest thing about depression is it isolates you, makes you feel really alone. Mm-hmm. Hence the name of the show. <laughs> um, and so just reaching out to people and saying, like, hey, I, you aren't a different person to me today. Mm-hmm. You may be a different person to yourself, um, and you are coming off as a different person, but I'm going to treat you just the same way. And that, that's the best way to handle depression. And it's, that it affects, like, so many people. Like, it's, it's so many people uh, self-identify as, you know, depressed or, or with anxiety, and it's it's kind of preposterous how you know we we push down these feelings and don't talk about them when like 10 percent of uh, adult people in america alone feel that way mm-hmm. yeah i feel it's it's not preposterous i mean it, it is you know in a sense that we haven't figured it out yet but it it's understandable mm-hmm. um we can probably we'll probably talk about it eventually um but the idea of mashing the two up you know uh <laughs> sadness and comedy um it's not really sadness but it is that when you take something really heavy and really really rough and honest and deep and you let yourself laugh about it and then you know one moment it's you know hitting so deeply and and really piercing and then the next moment you you just have fun and you let it go um for me it's a perfect analog for the way to like deal with things and um it's just fun. And yeah. It really results in really, really good comedy, and that's really cool. Yeah. As a, a personal preference, like my favorite comedy shows all have some level of, of, of depth and heart to them, and my favorite dramas all have some level of comedy to them. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like the best way to get one is to have elements of the other. Mm-hmm. And that's what we try to do. By being able to transform depression into um, a comedy show into a joyful experience does it help does it help you to kind of distance yourself from the depression like you're talking about just letting it go 
uh, um, which is sort of an interesting image in my mind. It kind of suggests once you kind of hold it up for kind of people's inspection and for people to kind of laugh and celebrate uh, uh, with, there is then an easier an easier transition to kind of um, uh, um, dissipating it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whenever you acknowledge something, you take the power away from it. And mm-hmm. that's... Um, a lot of times in life we feel like uh, we shouldn't feel certain ways. I shouldn't feel angry. I shouldn't feel sad. I shouldn't feel disappointed or whatever. And it's the impulse to suppress that that I think gives it power. It's the... <laughs> you know, why do I feel this way? You start wondering and you feel out of control and you feel like you don't have um, a grasp on your life. And um, when you acknowledge it and go, you know what? Yeah, I feel, I feel bad. That, and that's okay. It kind of goes away. Or at least you, you don't let it control you in a way. And um, to get up there on stage, Aaron and I have both read essays. And um, afterward, everything that you said doesn't feel the same. Everything that you talked about. Definitely it's easier after. Yeah. And it's amazing. It's like, I don't know exactly why, but I think it's the fact that you're telling a room of people and they're all going, yeah, that's okay. That's totally, you know, it's not, it's not fine because it's something, you know, bad that we don't want to happen, but it doesn't make you bad. And it doesn't mean that you're, a less valuable person and just to have a whole room of people that believe that, um, empathize with you and, um, just support and love you makes it just so easy to be like, I don't have to feel bad about anything that's happened, no matter how bad it was. And, and that's really, really great. Mm -hmm. And, uh, like, I don't know if it's because of the show or because of, you know, the time when I read an essay or if it just kind of coincided that way with my life. But like, since this this has started taking off, like my depression has all but dissipated. Like I I don't I've noticed like so rarely will I go into a downswing. Uh, you know my anxiety is is nowhere near as bad as it once was, and maybe that's from talking about it uh, mm-hmm. and just kind of accepting it, and and more than that, kind of trying to turn it into a strength with this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, where it, does armor? Yeah, I mean, we're not celebrating depression. I think no. that's um, kind of one of the the fears going into it was like, is this going to read as like, we're depressed and we're proud? Um, th- that's ridiculous. Like, why would you? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, sorry, I, I, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> what, um, you had ju- what did you just said? I uh, What did I just say? I said uh, that, you know. Oh, it goes away. There we go. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, Afterward, um, just like if I mean, I've been the same, had the same experience. I don't feel as bad on a day to day basis. Things get, are getting better, and seeing them get better is amazing. And uh, the show has been a really, really big part of that. That is not what I wanted to say, but I'm not going to remember <laughs> it. So let's just move on. Well, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's one of the hallmarks of depression and anxiety a feeling of powerlessness. And oh, yeah. Yeah. And helplessness. And isolation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So being able to transform that and to take ownership of it and to use it as the, 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 the building material for something to create, um, is sort of the negative of that, right? Like it puts you in a, in a position where you have power over, you are able to, um, uh, channel, the force of the depression rather than be carried away by it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And like, uh, 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 we, we host it, but I, I don't really feel like it's, you know, our show. I kind of feel like it's, it's, it's everyone's show who, who self identifies with it and who, who wants to be a part of it. Like mm-hmm. uh, we have people who, you know, say like, uh, I'd love to do the show, but I, I don't know if I qualify and like, our policy is if you think you qualify 100% you do. Is that what you mean when you say self-identify that, that these are people who are not necessarily clinically diagnosed? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. that's exactly what like, I mean, uh, our last show we had someone who said like, I, I've never experienced depression, but there have been people in my life who, who uh, 
you know, people close to this person who have had that. Mm -hmm. And we're like, great, you want to do improv? Like it's, it's, uh, kind of using that isolation as a a connection between all of us and Mm -hmm. just kind of silently looking at each other and going like, yeah, yeah, we're not going to tell anybody you're not depressed enough for our show. <laughs> um, but between you and me, there are people who aren't depressed enough for your show. I know, yeah. it's yeah. true. But uh, you know what? If they're supportive, then they get to be part of it, and that's great. It's um, It was inspired you know, by the other shows that have um, a big focus on inclusiveness, like um, We Might Just Kiss and No Place Like Home. Um, things that just kind of say, like, there's a place for everybody mm-hmm. and we're going to like take positive action to make sure everybody has a place and everybody fits in. And um, then it's okay to talk about it. Yeah. Well, here's a, a big thing about that show is that, um, people who go to see it walk away feeling happy and entertained. Mm-hmm. How do you pull that off? Because that is not easy in the context of a show that is not only about tackling a difficult subject, but also a show that's about, um, giving a voice and giving a sense of community to people who otherwise feel very isolated and, and possibly very sad and very anxious. How do you, what is your strategy for turning that into an experience that leaves people walking away feeling happy? I mean, we work on good improv. Yeah. <laughs> That's the main thing is, um, well, what's really crazy is that all of the essays, I think every single one has been funny and every yeah. single one has been, um, I mean, they're not funny all the way through, but they shouldn't be. Um, some of them are funny all the way through. And Yours was one of my favorites with the uh, the honest OK Cupid profile. <laughs> yeah, well, we can maybe get into that if we have time later, <laughs> or people can watch it. It's on YouTube. Yeah. Um, watch me have a panic attack and then uh, kill. <laughs> uh, but like, uh, it, and we're, yeah, we're not really trying to make. The, the the sadness funny mm-hmm. I think that's the big thing is we're not taking the things that are sad and rough and, and saying like no this is actually funny because it's not mm-hmm. it's not funny to you know talk about you know someone you loved who killed themselves or something like that but there's a lot of funny details around it you know um, like how you carried your uh, carry the weight of it and like the random things that might have happened uh ali ali brosh i think is her name uh the writer of uh hyperbole and a half mm-hmm. has a couple of just phenomenal essays about depression that kind of uh uh inspired me uh quite a bit and, and like they're they're talking about the isolation and you know the the negativity but also about the how funny it is just to kind of like wear the same hoodie for three weeks straight. Like yeah, th- there's, funny there's funny thing. in that. Yeah. There's, I mean, anything that is kind of, um, atypical in mm-hmm. any way can, is, is perfect ground for, um, you know, inspiration for an improv scene. Mm-hmm. And I think that like, uh, you know, depression is definitely the big word in, you know, the title of our show. But I think like the next one that we focus on is uplifting. Mm-hmm. Like I, every <laughs> essay we have, we, we, you know, we try to make the focus, you know, about, you know, how, yeah, this is sad, but it, it's not the thing that's going to weigh you down forever. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there is an upside. Uh, and it was a big part of selling the show. Um, yeah. I wanted to call it a comedy show about depression because that's what it is to me. Um, the uplifting part, like to me, just for my sensibility, cause I'm a, uh, misanthrope. I, um, like it, it is uplifting and like, that's what makes a successful essay for the show is that it ends on an upswing. But, um, and we end every show with, uh, an optional group hug for everyone in the audience. Yeah. So there's definitely like a, a sappy, <laughs> uh, you know, like positive vibe to the whole thing. Oh yeah. Um, I, I love the sap. Love it. <laughs> I tolerate it. (laughs) (laughs) But there's, there's a fine line between, um, moving people and asking for pity, Mm -hmm. right? Like uh, we've all seen that one person show that makes you want to murder the performer because the whole show is, is just them asking for sympathy. And, and basically, um, uh, 
uh, uh, forcing you to like stay and applaud and appreciate that. <laughs> no, it's just like someone, you know, pandering for laughs right. or something. It's the same thing. Um, it's not a commitment to the, the really, the idea of what's happening. It's a commitment to the like, um, tangible goal of getting a laugh or yeah. the tangible goal of like making someone cry. Like if you're trying to do that, then you're not doing it for the right reason. Yeah. Then it'll be that much harder to make that happen. Yeah, exactly. Because people get that sense and it's why there's shitty TV shows and t- <laughs> shitty movies mm-hmm. because the goal for those things aren't um, to create good art. They're to, you know, get ratings or to, you know, anything that like anything tangible and measurable is usually like a bad thing to strive for mm-hmm. in, in my mind. But I, I, I don't think... It, it's tough because that's a that's a fine line that you walk in life too. Where who do you share your feelings with? Who do you talk to? This is why living with depression is a little bit tricky. And um, you know you have to share. That's how you. Yeah. That's how you. Um, I think I, I I don't know about you, Grant, but like my my first goal for this show is to like put on a good show, and my second goal for it is to like kind of open a dialogue a little bit. You know. Yeah. And maybe that's just a personal dialogue between you and your friends, but as long as it's okay to talk about, like I, that's that was what I really wanted for the show, mm-hmm. and it seems to like people are talking. Yeah, about and it. I think that's amazing. And um, at the same time, though, I don't think that just like you know, there's not a place for pity in um, a lot of things. Like it's not always a, a really great that not every time is a great time to talk about what's wrong you right. know a lot of yeah. times you do need to focus on what's right um and a big struggle with depression is you don't want to define yourself or your relationships by um depression you don't want a friendship to go the way of just being you talking to someone else about your problems yeah um but I think everybody's just good enough at dealing with that, that it just hasn't become a problem. You know, people don't want to go up there to tell everybody how sad they are. That's never the point of anyone's essay. The essay yeah. is they all have kind of a thesis, and the thesis is usually um, something a lot more nuanced and a lot less about them. And the way I see it is everything is about the audience. And that's why we don't, we're not asking for anything from the audience. We're mm-hmm. giving. We're, we're not asking for pity. We're giving them information. We're giving them strategies for dealing with depression. We're giving them strategies for dealing with their friends and family members who have depression. We're not asking for anything at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why it works. Other than for people to you know, listen. Well, well, we're not even asking yeah. them to do that. Oh, I totally am. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad to, that they to listen do. to you or to listen in general. Oh, no, 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 uh, to listen in general right. and uh, also just like to you know watch the people on the stage. Right. You know, come to the show. That's well, sh- that's the one thing I I want. Yeah, sure. Be- beyond the yeah. you know, just like we have a show, come see it. Yeah. Um and this is what it's about. We're not trying to trick people. You well, because is the thing with the depression the shame that's involved with having to kind of cope with it privately of not wanting to let it out on people. And Mm -hmm. is that part and parcel of the isolation behind it? Definitely. Like, I mean, yeah, like I, I, uh, Grant first came up to me with the idea about doing a depression show and I like felt so relieved that like even, walking into the first meeting uh, with Grant about it, like in my head, I was like, it may happen. It might not happen, but at this, at least we're talking about it. And at least we're, we're doing something to try to put on a show like that. That in and of itself was huge for me. Yeah. Let me, let me see if I can give an example um, of the isolation and the, like, and how it feeds back into your relationship with other people. Um, Aaron and I both had really interesting experiences at Camp Magnet. Yeah. We met at Camp Magnet this past year, and Aaron has been going for a few years. Uh, yeah, I think uh, four or five years now. It was my first thing I did with uh, with uh, the Magnet Theater, and I uh, fell in love with Camp Magnet and the Magnet uh, all at once with it. Enrollment is open right now. <laughs> MagnetTheater.com is that website. We're yeah. just here to advertise. Uh, about like two years ago at Camp Magnet, I, I had just a, a massive downswing. Mm-hmm. Uh, just felt like nobody Nobody wanted me around. I, I nobody liked me, uh, and I ended up like walking away from a bonfire uh, where people were laughing and singing, uh, and just kind of found a gazebo and cried in it for an hour. Hmm. 
and called my, uh, my friend and just talked to him. Uh, and like, Grant, yeah, you had, you had a, a similar thing happen in the next year. Yeah, I, um, I had a little bit of a breakdown. Um, and I also, I had, the bonfire was the next, the following day, but I, I didn't have any energy to like stay and hang out with people. And like, I've missed a lot of really critical moments in my life because just something snaps and, and I, I can't, I, it's, it's like a landslide coming and you're just like, ah, I gotta run. Yeah. Um, when you're feeling that way and your body is just full of, um, angst and anxiety and, and it's not really hopelessness, sad, hopelessness. It's not really sadness. I think that's the, the thing that I, at least for me, like, Sadness is like a really good feeling for me in the sense that it, it makes you feel alive. It's something very real. Yeah, sad, sadness is very poignant. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And people get sadness. People totally appreciate sadness. Something bad happens to you and people want to be there for you. And it's wonderful. Um, the interesting thing, like one of, one of the uh, most interesting things to me about depression is that it, it affects people differently. There's no uniform thing of like that is depression i feel it the exact same way as you do sure i mean there are a lot of commonalities yeah yeah but there are for everybody um but when you're in that moment and you you you're filtering everything through this lens that um you stop at, at the extremes when you start to dissociate and have psychotic breaks you stop perceiving the world um Mm. the way it is I mean, we all have our own version of the truth, but you start to see people around you and you feel like, oh, they don't like me. Like, or overanalyzing everything said to you, said yeah. near you, looping, possibly said about you. Looping mm-hmm. thoughts, you know, yeah. um, all kinds of crazy stuff. And, and so you don't want to be around people because you want, you don't want to, I mean, for me, it's like, I don't want to, I feel like people don't want me around, so I don't want to be around um, for their sake, like I don't want to impose myself on them. <laughs> yeah. um, even if I know factually that that's not true, it, I feel it in every you know bone in my body. And um, so you want to run and you want to leave. And that's what, you know, panic attacks are just a f- uh, fight or flight response, and your body telling you to run. And that's before I moved to New York. That's how I dealt with it. Is I would r- run. I can't run uh, as much in New York, and it's bumming me up. Anyway. Um, mm-hmm. So there's this one impulse to run away, but then the thing that you crave and desire more than anything else in the world in those moments is companionship and someone to understand and someone to listen to you. And not necessarily you like stroke your back and say, it's, it's all okay. It's all going to be okay. Like, but, but more just kind of to know that it's okay. If that makes sense. Exactly. To To just accept and you need hard factual evidence that you are not all of these things that you think you are in that moment, that you're not a pariah, that you're not, you know, making everybody miserable. Yeah. Um, just one person being nice to you, being kind, um, can really change everything. And that's like the one piece of advice that I think is universal for almost any situation in life. But for people dealing with depression is just be kind. You don't have to fix things. You don't have to go too far out of your way. You know, you don't have, please don't babysit people. Um, that makes people feel more like, they're a ba- you know, a subject. Yeah. Of, and, and some sort of exhibit or, <laughs> yeah. Or like you're, you know, if you already feel like you're imposing with your very existence and then someone's like, no, I have to sit here and watch you. And yeah, oh sure my God. Okay. Um, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> um, you feel like, well, also you feel like a child and that's never fun. Yeah. Unless you want to feel like a child, which I do most of the time. But, um, when my first, uh, my, when my de- depression first like flared up in my life, the way I'd, I'd treat it is uh, whenever I felt a downswing. Like I had a, a core group of friends that knew about what I was going through, and I'd just call them and say like, "Hey, I'm 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 low right now. Can we just hang out?" And you know, either they'd come over to me or we'd just meet up somewhere. And like it was, we we didn't necessarily talk about like what I'm feeling, but I'd, I'd be with someone who I knew loved me and just, we'd hang out, we'd play video games, watch a movie or just something. But I, I knew I had a friend Mm -hmm. and that's what I needed to know. I knew that I had love. Yeah. For me, um, I, I didn't have a lot of friends growing up, not because I, I wasn't capable of making friends, but I went to really tiny schools and I moved a lot. So I didn't get to form like really deep connections. And, and as I've gotten older, it's gotten, 
so lately it's gotten a lot better, but it, it started getting worse and worse where it's like, I can't connect with people. And I never really felt like I had that, that safety net, except when I was like in a relationship or something. And I knew I could count on that person to be there. And the t- worst times in my life are the times when I would isolate myself from other people. Um, and you feel like you can't ask someone to hang out. You feel like you can't. Yeah. And, but that's what you need to do. That's what you want to do. You just want to reach out to someone. And, and all you can think about is, why isn't anyone reaching out to me? I don't know. It's, it's very hard, and it doesn't make any sense. So it's yeah. not even really that worth analyzing. Honestly, it's just... The way I see it is almost like you're, you're kind of losing touch with the world and just kind of need someone to throw you a rope. And yeah. just let you know that, oh, yeah, you're still on board. You're yeah. still a part of it. Can I ask, is that one thing that characterizes it? Because both of you guys have described kind of losing touch with the world. Mm-hmm. Is it a thing of the world outside of you feeling somehow less real? Mm-hmm. Or is it a thing of the world inside of you somehow feeling more pressing? It's both. And uh-huh. it's yeah. very strongly both. Um, there's the idea of dissociation, um, which... And at in its worst manifestations can be like an out of body experience, but in like a, a severe but not catastrophic situation, you can actually feel physically distant. You can actually things look more distant. You you or disconnected. Disconnected. You lose the ability to focus, and it's yeah. um, it's very physical. I mean, it's psychological, but it feels very physical. Um, on the other hand, yes, the things inside you feel more real than anything else. And that's the, when I've had big problems and I've had big problems, um, it's mostly been because what I felt inside was felt so real and so true and I couldn't get that out of my head and I felt like I had to act on it. Um, and, and I mean, this is like where it gets into like very medical, very, um, you know, clinical psychology kind of stuff, but, uh, (laughs) I want to point out that this this conversation wouldn't be uh, necessarily something we would have on on the show. Yeah, um, uh, we try to like really not talk too much about like symptoms and um, those kind of things. Uh, you know, it's like latch onto one idea and demonstrate that through a story. Um, well, it's it it's interesting to hear. Um, I, I mean, I get my fair share of anxiety and 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 uh, uh, self immolation. Um, without going so far as that I, I don't think I would ever identify as being depressed for the most part. Mm-hmm. But everything that you're describing to degree are certainly experiences that I'm well familiar with. Of course. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. It reminds me of this idea of, of reality, of consensus reality, reality being a group endeavor, mm-hmm. that the fundamental element of reality is agreement between people. We all agree about an experience that's taking place. And so I can trust my inner perceptions as being basically sound. Right. Yeah. And the less real the world around you becomes and the more real your subjective world becomes. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's terrifying about this uh, uh, is that other people can't agree to it and can't see it. And you're left very much alone with a reality yeah. that you can't share with other people. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's tough to explain what you're going through when you're in the middle of a downswing to someone who doesn't really experience that. Like I, uh, my worst downswings, uh, all of my motivation is sapped. And while that doesn't sound exactly as, as, as terrifying out loud, but like, like, uh, I, I ended up losing a lot of weight because I'd be lying on my bed, staring at the ceiling, like going like, okay, I should make some food. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that is a good idea. I will, I will make some food. And then just, it's like, there's something uh, disconnected. Like I send that signal down to my body and my body just will not receive it. My body won't receive it and mm-hmm. get up and move. Like it can be phys- I mean, uh- this is something that I, I mean, depression is really just a, a clump of symptoms. There's really no yeah. definitive cause, you know? So it is a, I, I consider it a disease, but I don't know exactly what the disease is, but I do know the symptoms. And one of those symptoms that I still deal with um, very, very frequently is um, a feeling in the morning of being physically held down, of being mm. trapped, of being like underneath like a giant boulder and not being able to move. And for someone who has 
so much ambition and so many big ideas um, and not to be able to act on any of them a significant portion of the time, it's, it certainly makes things worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I like that idea of um, like social reality or um, I forget exactly how you phrased it, but I think that's something that's very common in people with depression is a very, very unique view of that. Um, one of the recent essayists um, spoke a little bit about how as a kid he would see like all the negative in the world and um, wonder why everybody else didn't feel the same way about it. Um, and that's very, like, uh, for me, just, like, resonates so strongly. You know, I see the way people behave and the way, you know, things work, and I certain things, like, really dig into me. And I think, um, and you see people all around the world, you know, different cultures and different societies have such different views of morality and, and all that stuff, you know, is really, really great and wonderful and interesting for the most part, but then you see things, you know, very bad happening. But the thing is, anyone who does something very, very bad within the context of a society, any society that does something very, very, you know, what we would perceive as bad, always feels like they're doing the right thing. That's kind of part of that social reality. Um, people with depression kind of exist in a microcosm where they're, you know, on the outside looking in, going, my version of the world and the way things should be doesn't fit with the way that people, everybody else perceives it. There's something in me that is broken. Yeah. I'm broken and I'm different. What's another thing that's interesting hearing you guys talk. It it, it seems like, um, guilt is a major, Oh God. Yeah. Force as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you know that you should be, you know, experiencing life like it, it, when you have like those downswings, never is it more uh, uh, obvious that uh, so many people in the world don't feel that way. Like it's, okay. it's such an isolating thing. Why isn't everybody else sad? Yeah. yeah. Why doesn't everybody else hate me the way that I, yeah. I why seem doesn't to? Everybody else hate me. Don't they Come see on, it? Guys, let's Come all on. Hate me. Let's all. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's an interesting thing. Like I don't, I don't know the science behind anything, so I'm talking completely out <laughs> of my asshole here, but it in the way that you're describing lack of motivating power your body actually like stopping you from being able to do stuff like one of one of the when a sense of meaning and purpose evaporates anybody who's ever lost their sex drive or fallen out of love knows exactly what this oh, is yeah. suddenly there's no point to anything anymore yeah mm-hmm. and and motive goes out the window and that's when things get really ugly. But it's interesting the way that, that you're talking about how come other people don't feel this way and how come other people don't see this in my mind, there's like an image that comes up of, of taking that motive force that belongs to you and describing it to the people around you. So you have the deficiency, but everybody else has total motive ability a total kind of confidence and ability to act and change the world around them, leaving you in a place where you're very much alone with your own privacy, alone with your thoughts, but lacking this kind of cohesive glue to to will them into action. And that, that kind of, uh, the, the stigmas of, you know, depression, uh, only perpetuates that. Like, uh, the mm-hmm. the idea that someone could say to you like well just stop being sad or or why don't you go for a walk then mm-hmm. you'll feel better and it's like they don't understand like but that's just not a possible thing right now um, there, it's there like a some... when with a car with a uh i don't know anything about cars uh <laughs> but when you know that one piece maybe an alternator cap isn't on the car and then all of a sudden it's just Mm-hmm. Uh, you're dealing with a two-ton piece of metal. Mm-hmm. It's not a car anymore. Right. Uh, even though it was just missing that one little thing. If yeah. that makes sense, I might have. Yeah, it's it's super um, recursive. You know, it's all a catch-22. It's I don't feel good, so I don't do things, and then I don't feel good because I don't do things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when people, I mean, there's some validity to all that, you know, stuff of like, yeah, go take a walk, go run, um, smile, and you'll feel better. All that stuff, you know, has like, a purpose, you know, it's good advice in the sense that it, if it is actionable, it might help. Um, but the problem is it's not actionable. It, yeah. it, the thing that would, re- 
that you need to do those things is what is missing. And mm-hmm. it's so hard to explain to someone who doesn't feel it, why it's not actionable. Like it, it's, it's, it's almost like a, a, a different language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we've talked a lot about this. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> now let's switch gears and talk about the show itself. And, and in particular, a couple of things. I want to go back to that, that idea for a second of the more your inner reality becomes real and the less the outer reality becomes real, the more alone you are with these perceptions that other people aren't validating, aren't agreeing to. It's the exact opposite of what every school of improvisation teaches, yes. which is the building block is agreement. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a, a wonderful interview with Paul Sills in the book, Something Wonderful Right Away, where he talks about making the invisible visible, validating invisible, he calls it spiritual realities, and validating them to turn them into objective realities. He talks a lot about seeing it in the space, in Paul Sills's vocabulary. When improv is working, it's not necessarily when it's being funny, it's when the space appears. That's his phrase, hmm. which I've always interpreted as all of a sudden I see what's inside your mind. I physically, visually see it through your object work, through the way that you're reacting, and I can agree to the experience that you're having. And now it becomes yeah. a shared experience, and now that we're agreeing to it and we see it, the audience sees it, and now it becomes a communal experience. And so we're able to give birth to something that was intangible moments ago. I think in a lot of ways, comedy, not just improv, like all comedy is a way of connecting to like kind of deep seated thoughts and understandings that we hold to be true for ourselves, but we don't know are necessarily true for everybody else. I mean, think about like, you know, the classic Seinfeld, like pointing out the obvious and everybody's like, yeah, that's true. That's so funny. Because I already believed that, but mm-hmm. I didn't know anybody else did, or I didn't put it into words enough to feel like, you know, that that was a solid idea. I think all comedy is about connecting with people. And um, what's interesting about humor and, and laughter is that it's tangible. When you make someone laugh, there's no mistaking that you made them laugh. Um, same thing with interestingly enough with, for the show, same thing with making someone like gasp or um, sigh or mm. say, ah, oh, you know, like there's uh, this very tangible reaction when you touch someone emotionally um, that makes the comedy and the, you know, depression part uh, work well together, I think for the show. Um, but yeah, I think what you're saying is like absolutely 100% why people with depression so frequently pursue comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a great, yeah. I mean, you're, you're reconnecting with the world you feel like you've lost touch with, uh, in, in a way. Um, and almost, Oh man, I've just got so many thoughts going down a little funnel of my mouth <laughs> trying to work their way um very common when you do the podcast for that to be (laughs) the experience uh yeah it's just i don't know i i I kind of i want i knew before we started doing the show that i just was so tired of feeling that i i i was so tired of not talking about it Mm -hmm. and it's just the show is given a platform for us and and others to to just let that thing out yeah. well, and, you, and be okay with it. You were talking about it, which is, it was really cool. That's why I, I reached out to you. Um, we had met at camp, but we didn't really connect. And you were the last person I thought, you know, would be my partner in this <laughs> endeavor. Yeah. Um, but you were, you were making videos about it, which is a great way to do it because people have a choice whether to watch the video or not. Um, yeah. I, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that, that it, I just, yeah, I wanted to, get it the hell out of my body and yeah. stop. And like every time I, I made a video about living with depression, I, I felt lighter and I felt mm-hmm. like it didn't even matter if someone watched it or not. I just needed to let it out. Same. And it's, I think all goes back to that idea of um, sharing your reality and having it validated and having someone say, yes, that's real. Mm-hmm. The way you're feeling is real. Maybe the causes aren't, you know, lining up and, and that's kind of a good way to let go of some of the feelings It's like, okay, I feel this way, but there is no reason I feel this way. And then, 
that's not necessarily the easiest thing to deal with. It's, and then you're frustrated because of that. But if you can learn, uh, and this is where the whole let it go thing kind of comes out, is when you realize that something doesn't fit, that it doesn't follow, your only choice is to let it go. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, then you can feel better. Probably not right away, but you know, eventually, and like every day, you know, feel a little bit better. Yeah, gets a little bit easier. Increment by increment. Um, but comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. I have a theory, um, which is I'm almost certain to be really embarrassed about in six months' time. This is going to prove to be one of the more idiotic things I've ever said. But bear with me. I like your confidence. Yeah. Thank you. It's it's honesty and it's realism. Mm-hmm. It's you know I'm totally confident in my sensibility. Um, my theory is um, there's a, a growth spurt going on among uh, the human species. Um, I think that we're, we're changing, now, whether it's a biological change or whether it's just a change in our awareness of ourselves and our awareness of each other. I think we're veering much more into a kind of X-Men kind of universe mm. where... <laughs> Our Finally, ca- comic books. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. This, this is for you, Aaron. <laughs> our categories for ourselves and our categories for each other are mutating. It, it, like a, a case in point is it used to be there are men and there are women. <laughs> and that's no longer, at least in, in more cosmopolitan circles, an accepted thing. It, there are uh, many variations on a continuum. And I think that that's a very healthy, mature yeah, way to think absolutely. about that. Um historically your prevailing culture or society kind of creates the limitations of how we can categorize ourselves and categorize each other. And the job of an individual within that society was to do their best to acclimate to those categories. There's an agreed upon reality about how people are and how people should be. be. And, and that agreed upon reality for thousands of years uh, uh, was connected to the order of the universe and etc. I believe that uh, our awareness as a species has matured to the point that we're fragmenting into a, an era of more individual awareness mm-hmm. and not thinking so much in terms of broad categories, but thinking more in terms of a network of many different realities that all feed into each other and all uh, support each other. But there are basically as many different people as there are. There are as many different universes out there. Yeah. And something like improv, taking it in the Paul Sills definition, creates through agreement and cooperation the ability to take an invisible spiritual reality and turn it into something tangible that people can see and agree to. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I believe that the future is not so much an improv comedy per se, but that improv is one of these kind of evolving languages that gives some but not all of us the ability to find a bridge between multiple different universes and give birth to updated perceptions of what the real world can look like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, uh, uh, the Dalai Lama was interviewed, I think uh, a year or two ago about, uh, uh, his perception of the world. And they brought up, you know, uh, all the wars going on and very casually the Dalai Lama said, you know, no, we're getting better. Like we're, we're growing and, with complete confidence, he he, he saw like uh, a progress in us. Like, yeah, we are accepting, and and I feel like improv maybe improv probably isn't the reason why, but a lot of the uh, the uh, building blocks for improv seem to line up with this idea of just accepting everything in the world and accepting someone else's whatever for what it is without trying to corrupt it or change it but maybe adding on to it, you know? Well, it's also taking turns making each other's ideas real. Yeah. Yeah. That idea of going with each other and building on each other means that when you make an offer and I support that offer and now what was in your mind is now something tangibly real, 
well, in 10 minutes, that's going to be edited, and then I'm going to make a completely different or offer, <laughs> which you're going to accept, and now there's going to be a new reality. And the kind of sum of this show is this kind of collage effect of multiple different realities suddenly coexisting in this made-up universe side yeah. by side. But it creates, through exposure more of a sense of permission for multiple realities to be coexisting mm-hmm. side by side. It, it creates a little bit more of, I believe it's preparing the ground for a more fluid way of understanding one another and, and, and taking ownership of many divergent, uh, um, many divergent branches of the human species. I think historically it's just been the human species, but I think that we are X-Mening that shit. I I think that we're mutating in multiple different directions simultaneously, but we're developing now a little bit of a basic language to, to touch on a communal consensus ground. That's like the role that in my mind theater plays fundamentally is it's a place where we can come together to create the consensus about what's going on in our lives. So we can all see it and agree to it and then go off our separate ways to live our lives and then come back to the theater to reach a new consensus. Mm -hmm. What's nice about improv is that it's constantly fluid and constantly changing uh, by its nature. And so it gives you the ability to update your reality constantly as you learn new things and interact with new people and have new experiences and broaden your mind and broaden your perspective and come to different conclusions and outgrow certain old ideas and come into new ideas. An improv theater is a place where you can constantly put that on stage and validate it. Mm. Yeah. That's my stupid theory. (laughs) No, I think there's a a lot to it. A lot of uh, truth. And I think there's a lot of evidence that um, just in our society in general, Look at how much more accepted it is. Um, well, first of all, look at how much more uh, awareness there is of just different lifestyles and different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And something that comes to mind is like the furry community. Mm-hmm. While that may be a subject of you know mirth for a lot of people, um, the fact that they're like being talked about and like kind of included at least in the social reality, like that this is a thing that people do, um, shows that we're not as concerned about everybody like lining up and, and looking the same and all wearing white, you know, Oxford shirts and crew cuts and all that. Also look at what's popular now. When I was a kid, and I'm still a kid, but when I was, you know, 12 or whatever, I loved fantasy, fantasy novels. That was how I just got through life, you know. Um but the whole world was against it. And, and at least to my eyes, um, my mom hated it. Um, you know, the kids at school made fun of me for it. I got, you know, kind of bullied and now game of Thrones is the most popular thing in the world. Pretty much, you know, (laughs) it's one of the most popular TV shows of all time. And, um, so people are willing to accept fantasy and sci-fi and comic books, especially comic books are everywhere now. Um, those alternate realities and living in them and appreciating them and kind of having um, uh, a taste for that is totally accepted. Yeah, this this idea of fitting these rigid molds that like seem to be you know so stereotypical of every '80s high school movie. <laughs> uh, like it, it's it's changing so entirely and and to like yeah. Find. I feel like the the encouragement to find your own thing, find your own voice, find your own interests, sexuality, whatever, is is being so welcomed at such a younger and younger ages. Uh, like I I have I uh, I have a I just heard this story about how uh, this one uh, gay guy only has sex with straight men. And shared that story, and uh, oh, I know that guy. Yeah, <laughs> and like it was completely accepted. Like, yeah, okay, I guess that's your type. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of immediately, you know, what would have happened in like, man, even in the early '90s, being chastised for that. Oh, yeah, and, he'd be on TV. I mean, he'd be on like a, a crappy like Maury or Jerry Springer show, or a threat watch by the audience <laughs> and people. Yeah, it'd be crazy. Um, but, and here's the thing that I, I think about a lot 
those kind of social structures exist for some re- for a reason. Mm-hmm. And I found my entire life uh, myself flashing out at them and, and being so um, feeling so put down by them. Um, I was reading something today about foot binding and like the last few remaining um, uh, Chinese women who had their feet bound and how almost all of them feel like it was a good thing because it increased their sense of belonging. Yeah. And it increased their sense of self-worth and their, you know, and like looking at it objectively, it's horrific and it's not attractive. And it's like, I mean, from my perspective, it's not attractive. Um, I read somewhere once that they weren't supposed to show their feet to men because they're disgusting. Um, but the idea of it was so appealing because it brought people together in a way that like you just had to kind of make a decision to fit in and you fit in. And I think that's, um, it's going away, which I think is great because I've never felt like I fit into anything and I don't feel like I fit into that kind of any kind of stereotypical roles. Um, but what happens in the vacuum of that, you know, when there aren't any standard kind of ways to behave, I, I hope that we find a really good way to deal with it, which I think is kind of just yes and. And it really is just saying like, cool, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I feel like all those lines are getting so much blurrier. Like I, I was raised uh, uh, Jewish and, you know, went to I was bar mitzvah and was confirmed because that's a thing reformed Jews do, I guess. Um you were confirmed? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, a part of Reformed Judaism? Apparently, that's the one funny. I went to. Uh, uh, <laughs> and I that's, only That's self-deprecating Judaism. Yeah, there, it's, right? which uh, is, in and of itself, very Jewish. Uh, but, like... <laughs> we are so Reformed that, that we're Catholic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, like, you know, after... You know, I, I did the confirmation just because, you know, my dad wanted me to. And like the once it was done, I was like, great time to eat pepperoni pizza on Yom Kippur. Like I'm, I'm so done with it, but I'm still so thankful that I had that identity and and had that kind of group. Like I'm, I'm not Jewish in practice at all anymore, really, but I, I'm having that that kind of identity to come from yeah informs who i am now immensely well i'll be this is another augment to my stupid theory um but that's also one thing i've been thinking about a lot in terms of the future especially as like there's more and more talk of extending lifespans you know, I, I, know. <laughs> I have mixed feelings myself. I, I want to die by the time I'm 45. That's my goal. Yeah, I'll, I'll I don't push really a little to, beyond that. I'd like uh, to make it to 101, yeah. and then after that, I don't see any point. I do sort of feel like for me, mid 80s is kind of yeah. like okay, that's fine. But yeah. we'll see what happens when we're in our mid 80s. The average right. lifespan might be 500. Who knows? But the the longer a person lives, Alan Watts made this point in a bunch of his books, and it's a fair point. He he described you know, what if we achieved eternal life? And he just described it as eventually you'd be so sick of yourself and so bored that you would look for ways to completely forget everything just so that you can rebuild again. Mm -hmm. Um, If we achieve much larger, much longer lifespans, I believe that the future is in um, embracing identities for a period of time and then discarding identities in favor of slightly enhanced identities and then embracing that for a period of time and then discarding that. In my mind, it's not just like a fluid, there's no more definitions anymore. We are all the same. Because I think well, that, that that's... That, yeah, that wouldn't, yeah. Be, that wouldn't be fun. It'd be it, the same it wouldn't thing be fun not and having an identity. Exactly. It, 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 so I think that the future for us probably holds um, a lot of kind of... Kinda, cultural pride and group pride and, 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 you know, take your pick, but more of a flexibility to not identify permanently with that, but to take pride as you need it and Mm. be able to discard as you need it, which is exactly what you do when you improvise. You take on an identity for a period of time in a show, you discard it when you don't need it anymore to take on the next identity to let the next game be played. I really honestly believe, and I know I'm going to be embarrassed by this in a year's time, (laughs) but right now, 2015, I really honestly believe that improv, if you divorce it from just putting on comedy shows, which is a fine ideal, but if you divorce it from that, I really do believe that it, it is 
preparing our brains for whatever we're becoming. Yeah. I mean, like the, the basic lessons of improv, you know, accept add on and, you know, don't, uh, negate i feel like it can only prepare us for what's coming next like we're instead of like keeping to rigid rules that we've known in the past like yeah i mean yeah (laughs) i don't know how does it fit into the singularity or how does the singularity fit into this whole thing that is the most depressing i i hear you've heard it from me Ray Kurzweil, <laughs> fuck you, you suck. There's a there's a view on uh, the singularity, not a, a, a technological singularity, but a, a view of God that Neil Donald Walsh had in uh, conversations with God that I loved. Mm-hmm. Of that, like everyone is there is just God, and then God like sends little pieces of him or herself down, and that's you know a human life, and you grow and you experience and you know what God is because you aren't God right now. You, you kind of, uh, can see it from the outside looking in. And then when you die, you go right back into being a part of God. And maybe you decide to take that journey again so you can relearn everything or, you know, you just stay part of God. So again we're all, we're all just like God vacations. Yeah. It's a way of putting it. I like it. I thought you originally said God Bacons. God Bacons. And I can only imagine how delicious that would be. God Bacons is a good improv team name. <laughs> and by that, I mean terrible. There's <laughs> one other thing that I, I does occur to me. Just going back for a second to... There's a, a quote from um, James Wolcott, who writes for Vanity Fair. Great critic. And um, uh, in one of his essays, he said that... Uh, uh, laughing is the most alive you can be mm. which i think so succinctly summarizes it. it it describes laughter as as it's community building but it also breaks neural bonds and allows for greater flexibility of mind and allows for uh, more of a sense of lightness to come in mm. but he ends the essay with that thing that laughing is the most alive you can be which i i i think is one reason why improv veers towards comedy more often than not yeah is that it veers towards this place of as we're making these invisible things visible we're also kind of communally sharing and being alive together it it, it was either you or or peter i believe that had shared this the uh, the view of the two kinds of laughs the mm-hmm. mouth laugh of yes i acknowledge that mm-hmm. that i i know what you're talking about or the belly laugh, which is just, yes, this rings so true, yeah. my body can't possibly contain it. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that's, it's a great thing about laughing, too. I think Peter talked about this. Peter McNerney, guys, listen on the uh, podcast. You can find us on uh, SoundCloud and iTunes. Go back and Stitcher and, now. And Stitcher now. So go mm-hmm. and through the archives. Um, I think Peter was talking about this. What the hell was I going to say? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, Laughing is superfluous. It, I mean, there are theories about why we laugh, and there are theories about why it's such a physical reaction. But laughing is is one of the only uh, uh, things that we do that bridges the gap between reflexive behavior and conscious behavior. Mm-hmm. Breathing is another thing that we can kind of it's unconscious until we take conscious control of it. But laughing is something where we're consciously triggering deep rooted, unconscious uh, responses. It seems to kind of exist in this like weird bridge between the conscious self that we are, are based on our accumulated life circumstances and based on the roadmaps that we've created and and the direction we choose to be taking, what we're trying to make ourselves into. But then this like deeper rooted unconscious sense of, of what goes into making us. And in that moment of laughing, it's the moment where those two different parts unite and the the whole person is there, you know, like on every level, the whole person is being convulsed Mm -hmm. in a really good laugh as bullshitty as that sounds. You know that's how it feels when you have a sure. deep belly laugh. Yeah. You know it. It 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 uncorks something, and I mean, it is a little bit like an orgasm in that way, um, uh, uh, where it's like oh, multiple different, multiple layers and levels are all suddenly together. And it's also so personal. Like, I mean, how often have you like belly laughed to the point of crying at something and then tried to explain it to someone else and just gotten blank stares because you had to be there. You had to be in that moment. 
to experience that level of truth and that that pure joy. Yeah. You, you can never convey to somebody the set of chain reactions that go off inside of you when the huge laugh happens. Yeah. I mean, it, you don't even know, though. Like, that's the best part about it to me is, like, I don't know why I laugh. I don't yeah. want to know why I laugh. <laughs> I like laughing. I like making people laugh. I like hearing people laugh. It's. It, I mean, I love thinking about it. Don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, like, if we figured it out, it would ruin it. You know? yeah. Dogs chasing cars. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the nice thing there are what to do with, oh, we got it. Oh, I gotcha. Yeah. I thought you were saying that's funny, and I was like, uh, I mean, also dogs chasing cars are pretty funny. Funny, <laughs> yeah. depending on the circumstances. What but. are you gonna do with that big metal thing? <laughs> Who's it's in the car? Funny based on the status of the person in the car. Yeah, yeah. a high status, rich socialite woman. Very funny. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. Being chased by a tiny little corgi. Yeah. It, it, very funny. See, yeah. it, that's funny for a couple of reasons. Yeah. Anything can be funny. That's true. As long as it doesn't fit perfectly in with reality. Even depression. Especially, Boom! especially depression. That tied oh. very nicely together. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is interesting to me since we're kind of talking a lot about the future, like this idea of being able to take a, a reality that feels very private and, and very withdrawn from other people and bring it into the light of day and give it a validation mm-hmm. and an acceptance, but to also do it in, in an environment where you laugh and laughing to me is just like communally recharging the batteries. Laughing is, mm-hmm. is that's where we go to touch the magic magnet rock again and to feel that juice going into our bodies. It's where you go to kind of reaffirm um, that you're alive that's an, yeah, I'm yeah. not going to take it back, but you know, I'll be, fuck you for judging <laughs> me. For that. But it kind of is. It, it you know, our, our brains work in a really interesting way where we can get so lost in our thoughts that it's almost like your spirit can detach from your body, and and you know, like you can be very split as a person. Everybody, it, it you know, uh, laughing is a place where there's just a marriage of all those things again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the juice comes together. So I guess what I'm saying is you guys are doing God's work. <laughs> uh, thank you, God. <laughs> Gentlemen, how can people be part of your show? If someone's listening to this and they feel really touched and want to be part of it, what can they do? Uh, keep an eye on the you know magnet calendar, magnet theater calendar. Uh, find us on Facebook yeah. at Yana comedy. Uh, uh Reach out to either of us on on Facebook if you'd like to be an essayist on a show. Uh, you'll send a two sentence pitch for what you want to talk about to Grant. It is just as scary and not nearly as scary as it sounds. Yes, it's, and if you'd like to be an improviser on the show, uh, contact me through either Facebook or, uh, or if you don't want to talk to Aaron, you can talk to me. Yeah, the way we the way yeah it, we tend to break it down is uh, Grant will. Uh, uh, manage the essayists and I'll, I'll manage the improvisers, but there's like definitely a melting pot behind okay. it all. Everybody goes on the big spreadsheet that we have of everyone who, who yeah, would like to be a part of the show. It's getting real big guys. Seriously. Yeah. Uh, if you want to be part of the show, you know, we want as many, many people as possible. Yeah. The sooner, and, sooner and, you get on the list, the better. And even though that list is getting big, that, that does not mean that like you won't get on it know, for please, like especially, three years. Like it, it, it depends on scheduling and, you know, like yeah. uh, trying to make things as gender equal as we can for a specific show. Especially, uh, and especially essays. Essays are the thing that um, a lot of people have expressed interest in, but very, very commonly um, people find it a lot harder than they anticipated. Um, I'm here to help make it happen, um, give some gentle guidance and pushing, um, and uh, we need more people who just want to write so if you want to yeah. write and you don't really so much care if you get on that particular show, please, please, please. Which reminds me, I've been meaning to tell you, Aaron, I think we should start a blog where we put up people's essays. Uh, I'm 100% down for that as long as right. the people who you wrote their here. essays are down well, for it. Well, of course. It. I'm not yeah. <laughs> go into people's diaries. We own it now. <laughs> anyway. That's now a matter of public record. <laughs> <laughs> the show is You Are Not Alone, an uplifting show about depression. Aaron Gold, Grant Goldberg... 
Thank you for talking, gentlemen. This is thank fascinating you very conversation. Much. Uh, and thank you guys for listening. You have been listening to the Magnet Theater Podcast. I, again, am Lewis Kornfeld. Thanks to our engineer and co-guest today, Grant Michael Goldberg, our producer, Evan Ford Barden, our executive producer, Ed Herpsman, and all the good folk at the Magnet Theater. Magnet Theater is where we offer classes and shows and improvisation, sketch comedy, musical improv, storytelling, all kinds of wonderful stuff. You can find out all about that on magnettheater.com. And also, one more thing. Uh, uh, yes, the date of our next show at the Magnet Theater. April 13th at 8.30. 8.30. 2015, yes. for those of you listening <laughs> to this in the distant future. You missed it. You missed it. Uh, <laughs> check it out online. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. 